News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And we also thought it was so appropriate to do that this morning because we were also going to be talking about the impact that your favorite music has on your brain function. Could it actually improve the way your brain functions? Well, according to a new study done by two University of Toronto professors, that actually could be the case. So for today's episode of Science with Simi, we're going to explore the value of music and health. And we are joined by Dr. Michael Todd, who's a senior author of this study and director of U of T's Music and Health Science Research Collaboratory and a professor in both the Faculty of Music and Temerity Faculty of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. This is fascinating research. Where do you even start to try to figure this out? Well, the uh, it's been a pretty frequent observation that uh, people with uh, dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease, have uh, <coughs> pretty good musical memories from so previous life experiences 25, 30 years ago. And sometimes they're very much out of touch with the rest of their memory function, so they don't remember what they maybe just who they saw, what they ate, what they did five minutes ago, but they remember music that's uh, 30, 30 years part of their life. So in a previous study, we wanted to see what is the network that preserves these uh, memories in the brain, and we published that a couple of years ago. And then we wanted to follow this up by saying, what happens in the brain when these uh, wonderful people listen to their favorite um, autobiographically important music for four weeks every day for an hour? And what happens in their cognitive functions and what happens in the brain? And so we found some pretty astounding things in terms of changes in the brain uh, after these four weeks of listening in terms of maybe the best way to summarize this is without any technical detail is there is more connectivity between brain regions in a network that is very active. So the brain, parts of the brain talk to each other much more again as they used to. So all so from the simple act of listening to our favorite songs? Yeah. Um, well, it's, uh, it's their favorite songs. It's, it, it was music that they were supposed to tell us or the caregivers or the spouses had a uh, specific autobiographical meaning to them. So let's say music that they heard the first time when they met their uh, spouse or birthday celebrations, or this is a song, my favorite song, because I sang that when I was a little kid in Sunday school, and I still remember all the words. So it was um, not so much just a favorite music, but rather it should have meaning to them still. And they still sort of recognize that. And so we created playlists of that music, and they listened to that for an hour every day. And when and you said, not, when you said Dr. Todd, that that meant that there was more connectivity in the different regions mm-hmm. of the brain, what does that mean for our brain function when there's more connectivity? Uh, more connect. I mean, the brain, brain regions need to talk to each other in order to have a healthy functioning um, brain that can make, you know, mem- remember things, makes good decisions, uh, is so oriented to life. And uh, so that that's a very, imp- I mean, the brain has, you know, a trillion neurons and, and these regions need to talk to each other to create an integrated 
perception and understanding of who I am, where I am, and what I'm going to do. And so the uh, the brain of Alzheimer's patients, um, <clears throat> or persons, I should say, is there is there is a reduced connectivity because some of the areas of the brain are attacked by these uh, deteriorating factors. And if you see that after a uh, sort of focused listening, music listening program after four weeks, that's actually quite remarkable because that's um, we don't see positive changes in those uh, brains. Typically, we just see deteriorating factors. That's amazing. So you were looking at this in Alzheimer's patients. What does that mean for future treatment then? Well, we think, I mean, we cannot reverse at this time the progression of the disease. But we believe that these data show that we can sustain, maintain uh, longer levels of functioning uh, for longer periods of time. So, so in other words, sort of a boost that is really not just reflected behaviorally, but also there's some underlying changes in the brain. So we hope that this can we, we, I think our data show that a, uh, a, these kind of music programs that are very easy to do, um, anybody can do that, um, can improve the quality of life longer for these persons that have these cognitive declines. So do you feel like anybody who is treating someone with Alzheimer's right now, they should be thinking about playing their favorite songs? Well, there is actually, yeah, I agree. There is actually a, uh, there are therapists, neurologic music therapists, they're trained in brain uh, treatment, and they are highly qualified to do this, but also a spouse, a caregiver, a family member can sit down and with that person and say, what is your, what is the music you still remember that had meaning in your life? What do you like? to listen to, what do you still remember? And create a playlist. Yeah. Just create a playlist. Excellent, excellent. I love that advice. Uh, Dr. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank Uh, you. And we're going to ask CKW contributor John Jang now some very difficult questions, maybe some math involved in that, mainly because he's been up all night. Right, John? (laughs) <laughs> that's right. Good morning, Simi. <laughs> Math in the morning? Yeah, oh, that's, that's right. Cruel. That's I know. Cruel. Why have you been up all night? What's going on? Uh, well, it was the 10th anniversary of Covenant House uh, ex- executive sleep out. So once a year, they do this. They invite different business leaders and organizations to come and check this out. Sleep outside, typically, uh, traditionally speaking, sleep outside at one of their lots and do it because you're showing solidarity and support for what they do. Of course, housing displaced youth all over the country. Uh, because of COVID-19 this year, they had to adapt a very new hybrid model. So they had a mix of people who were were maybe sleeping at their place of business. In this case, it would have been me sleeping at the radio station and having uh, quite the morning as you walk in and get ready to start your show. <laughs> yeah. uh, but because because the chorus is, uh, you know, we've got a COVID-19 policy right now at work, that wasn't uh, allowed to happen. So instead, what we had was me sleeping at home, however, doing so in a different manner. So instead of sleeping in the bed, I would have to give that up for a night's sleep. What I ended up doing was just sleeping on my living room floor. It's still a privilege because I had a roof over my head. I had walls around me and I had warmth, uh, generally speaking. But obviously what we're just trying to do is show solidarity and spread the message of the great work that Covenant House does. Yeah. And let's talk about that great work because this is where young people go. This is where youth go to find a safe place. 
Oh, 100%. In fact, approximately 1,000 youth uh, rely on Covenant House each and every year uh, in Vancouver. They are now in, in their 20th year of operation. And a lot of these youth are coming from displaced homes where maybe they had to run away because of trauma, because of conflict, because of crisis. And in that case, in that scenario, Covenant House is often uh, that last line before maybe youth uh, have to turn to more desperate measures. And I think what I what what I really approach the situation as, Simi, is that this is their their first step back towards building themselves a better future. Yeah. Because we take it for granted having the ability to sleep safe at night. You don't have to worry about all the noise of wildlife and street life and everything like that. It's just a comfort that many of these youth really do deserve. And let's remind ourselves here, too, that most of what Covenant House does, their operations are privately funded, like the vast majority of it. Yeah, they did explain that uh, last night when we were getting ready to go to sleep. We had a nice presentation. 96% of their operations come through private funding. So obviously, you know, that means they rely so much on the generous donations of uh, longtime donors, but also new ones as well. So that's why I encourage anyone listening who might be inclined to learn more or maybe are feeling generous. Whatever you can do is so helpful, goes a long way. Check it out online, covenanthousebc.org. Okay, that's great. So you had a pretty rough night in terms of sleep. Are you working today? I am working. Uh, that's right. What uh, I a mean, champ. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'll I take my coffee uh, and mix it up a little bit to feel a little bit better. But Simi, the whole point is that a lot of the youth who don't have a place to sleep True. every night, they still have to go to school or go to work the very next day every single day. So You're if, right, John. So is, you can suck it up then. I, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you. I mean, I can do this for one night out of the year. I can't imagine doing this on a very regular basis. Exactly. And yet so many people do. You're right. Uh, John, thank you so much for that. You got it. Thanks, Simi. So we thought it would be good to share good stories as well. We saw this one and thought, oh, we got to talk about this. This is the Fraser Valley Angling Guides. Yesterday, they announced that they had rescued and evacuated something like 100 people from Hope using their boats. How did this work? Well, Kevin Estrada, director with the association, joins us now. Kevin, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. How did you guys, how did this start? Uh, well, it just started out of a need. Uh, you know, obviously the people were trapped in hope there. And uh, another angling guide member, Steve Ford, and I said, we got we to gotta do something here. And we rallied the troops, sent out an email. And the next day, um, you know, we got a, a bunch of boats together. And, and we know the river. We're always on the river. So uh, got up to hope and, and, and saw a massive outcry for people trying, trying to get out from medical needs to children away from their parents. Um, it was pretty emotional. I feel like that's the key, right? Is that you're dealing with people who know the river because it's not as simple as just putting a boat out there in the flooded area and going. Well, for sure. Yeah. And we're dealing with, you know, the big Fraser, right? So the, there were sticks and trees and a, a lot of dangerous stuff coming down and, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's what we do. And, and we thought, what better way? I mean, we're not firemen, we're not police, you know, uh, you know, we're in a flooding stage, and we're the only ones really that can help but know how to navigate it properly. So, um, you know, it's been a it's pretty been an emotional few days for sure. And I'm really proud of, of what everybody in the community around here has been able to do. Um, you see a lot of, uh, you know, RCMP and SARS and stuff like that down closer to Abbotsford and Sumas. We're alone running our own, you know, so to speak, command centers upriver with uh, 12 to 15 boats 
uh, and uh, wow. it's been pretty impressive. Yeah, that is pretty impressive. So were you able, Kevin, to coordinate with, you know, with SARS or RCMP or anything like that? Or did you just say, here, this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it? Yeah, we, we basically ran our own show and, uh, and we've been doing that. Uh, a lot of cries, you know, social media is pretty powerful, right? And so we're getting a lot of, uh, a lot of messages and people direct messaging us and calling us. Uh, Dean work is in, um, in, in the Hope area and I'm out in Chilliwack. And so we're coordinating together with maps and computers to, to make sure we know where we're going and, um, and uh, yeah, to answer your question, we're we're doing it ourselves. We're trying to get help. You know, we've uh, uh, fuel has been a problem in Chilliwack. We're pretty isolated, and so uh, members of the community have been bringing us, uh, uh, you know, jerry cans of fuel for the boats. And uh, and we're trying to reach out to government, but right now it's just uh, it's just been us because it's been an emergency basis and just trying to get through what we got to get through. All right, now, are you still doing this? Are there still people there in hope that you're getting help to? Um, yeah, so there's people in hope. There's people that need transfers from Chilliwack to Mission for cancer treatments. Um, we've we've rescued animals yesterday. Uh, cry on you know an outcry from on social media uh, to rescue some calves, uh, dogs, cats. There's a, a pretty emotional video on our Instagram page of of, of uh, two members going in and getting some animals out of trailers that were nearly flooded. Right, so. Um, so right now we're still doing we're still doing everything we can. We've got boats ready to go, and um, and the community's helping with fuel. So uh, we're just we're just trying to get through it. Well, Kevin, I know there's a lot of people who want to help because they email me, and I've I've sent a couple of people to your website to get more info. But tell us about that. How can people help out? Well, I mean, yeah, good question. I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, um, we wanted to do this just to get it done and now that the cost of fuel and just trying to get stuff is is increasing right we don't have any funding there's i mean we're just trying to get this this uh people safe and and home info at fbaga.com uh is is where you can send an e-transfer to uh and that's and that goes to us and anything that we don't use or if we do get recouped um you know, through some emergency funding down the road, then we'll use that uh, towards our kids' education program for juvenile sturgeon. Okay, that's a great thing then. So you're going to keep doing this as long as the roads are flooded and people are having trouble getting around? As, any, as anybody needs help, we're going to be there. And, uh, and we've got uh, everybody's been able to get a hold of us so far, and we're tied into the community of Hope, which is stranded. Uh, yesterday, we worked with TELUS to bring five jet boats up to First Nations communities to drop off food and supplies and we're most likely going to have to continue to do that stuff. So, um, you know, for me, this is our industry has been hit really hard in the last two years. Some guys have lost their businesses and, uh, and to see this kind of, uh, you know, the outreach and, and help has been uh, pretty significant for an industry that's kind of been overlooked through COVID for help. So, um, it's, it's been pretty impressive to see, and I'm really proud of all the guys and all the members that have come together and, and some non-members as well, anglers at large, that have helped out uh, to help people. Well, I, I'm so impressed by what you guys are doing. Keep up the good work, and I hope we can help you out. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Now, I don't want to change anything that we normally do when we talk to coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Vanny Sartini, because they are this close to starting in their first postseason game since 2017. It happens tomorrow, so we have the coach with us now. Good morning. 
Good morning, Cindy. How are you? I am good, thank you. See, I wanted to play maybe a different song coming in, but I thought, I don't think we should mess with anything. Do you? No, 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 no. Let's keep the routine going. That's this good. That's this good. is what I thought. So <laughs> how has this week been for you? What, what's the team like right now? Yeah, the team is good. We, we are already in Kansas City. We flew here yesterday and, uh, you know, we work very well. Uh, everyone is very excited. Uh, the, the atmosphere, the mood, the training was really good. And uh, so, yeah, we are actually ready to go now to do our last training before the game tomorrow. And uh, I think we're going to do a good game. It's going to be very hard, eh? but uh, we're going to do our part. Okay, why do you say it's going to be really hard? Yeah, you know, they're a very good team and uh, also the atmosphere here in Kansas City. They have a nice stadium. It's not too big, very, but uh, you can feel the presence of the fans all around you. So, And of course, uh, <clears throat> according to the uh, to the standings, they arrived third, we arrived sixth. So they are the, they are the guys, they are the, the team that they have the, the favor of the home home advantage and the, and the points. So... Probably they go all in like like they should, but we'll go all in too, and uh, we'll we'll try to match their their intensity. And how do you keep that up for the team, Vanny? Like, how do you get that message through to them that okay, yeah, fine, the big battle was to make it to the playoffs, but now we have to keep that up. Yeah, you uh, know, I was a little worried because it's uh, after the three days that we had off after the when we reached the playoff, you. I didn't know if uh, the guys were coming back like a little, I don't know, satisfied or with not the same uh, hunger than than before to win. But uh, I didn't have to do much. The guys they came uh, really fired up, so they they made my my job uh, easier in this way. So I think that uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna do our part for sure. Okay, so the other big question I have is, what kind of socks will you be wearing tomorrow? Yeah, I have a new pair tomorrow. It seems we are in like, you know, middle America, so it's kind of whiskey, bourbon country. <laughs> I have these, uh, these socks with, uh, with this kind of, uh, of, uh, of bottles uh, depicted on, on them. <laughs> right, and now somebody gives you these socks, right? Yeah, it's uh, Dr. Cox, our... Uh, uh, head of mental performance. Uh, it's the sports psychologist that work with us. Right. <laughs> so I know this is a tradition now, but when did this start? Well, it actually started uh, because <clears throat> kind of a month and a half ago because he noticed that uh, I like to wear uh, very colored socks, so with uh, with different patterns, and uh, and he said, "Okay, I saw that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you this for the next game." Uh, so we won, so we had to do it every time. And uh, knocking on wood, we 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 haven't lost yet. So that's uh, it, it needs to go. It needs to keep going. <laughs> it does need to keep going. Okay, listen, Vanny, best of luck tomorrow, okay? We'll be rooting for you. Oh, thank you so much. And I uh, hope to have this chat again next Friday because it means that we won and we have another game. So yes, <laughs> fingers crossed. Good luck. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Thank- Now, just before we get to our next guest, have a listen to Dr. Teresa Tam just moments ago talking about the approval of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. Today, the new lower-dose pediatric formulation of the Comirnaty COVID-19 vaccine by Pfizer-BioNTech is being authorized by Health Canada as Canada's first COVID-19 vaccine for use in children aged 5 to 11 years. And NASI is recommending a complete two-dose series 
may be offered to children in this age group who do not have contraindications to the vaccine. As well, based on emerging evidence from adult immunization, which suggests longer intervals result in a stronger, longer-lasting immune response and may lower the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, NASI is also recommending a dosing interval of eight weeks or more between the first and second dose. All right, there you go. That is Dr. Teresa Tam with the approval of Canada's first COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. So what's this rollout going to look like? What's going to happen now? Joining us once again, Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so we knew this news was coming. What happens now? Well, now comes the hard part. We need to roll this out in a way that makes sense and that makes everyone feel comfortable, that makes parents feel that they're doing the right thing, and that children themselves will understand that they are being given a chance to be part of the solution. So let's all move forward together and do so properly. Okay, and what does that mean? So are we talking about special clinics set up for children, or can we do it in the same way that we did adults? Well, I think we should do it better than we did for adults. I think we should go into the schools. I think we should go into doctor's offices. I think we should go into settings where the parents that still want to ask questions can ask them, can feel comfortable, and as soon as these questions are answered in a way that makes them get to the decision that they want the vaccine to be given, that it be given right then and there. I think that's what's going to make the difference between a successful program and one that's a bit clunky. Of course, there's 50% or so of parents that have already said, we want to go ahead. So that group, I'm not terribly worried about. They're motivated. They're probably all vaccinated themselves. They will be reassuring to their children and, and they, will, they will get vaccinated. It's really the other half that we really need to bring along and make sure that as many as possible get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I would hope to have a very high vaccination rate before the holiday break. Okay, so you're saying now is the time then to bring on family doctors, because family physicians have been saying that for quite some time, haven't they? Absolutely. And I think what the government had said is two things. Is number one, the cold chain, this vaccine is very fragile. If you take it out of a fridge and don't use it, it will be wasted. And second, paperwork. We really have to document who got the vaccine and who needs second doses and by when. I think most doctors now understand how this needs to go. The vaccine can be kept in a fridge for a month. Doing paperwork is part of the daily grind of being a doctor, part of our jobs. So I think that going forward, we really need to involve them so that the families feel comfortable. Half of the families have decided to not yet register their children. That doesn't mean they don't want to get vaccinated. It means that they want to have the chance to ask their questions. Right. Let's get them to ask their questions to someone who who, who they trust. Right. Do we have to build that bridge, though, as well, Dr. Conway? Because there's people out there who don't have family doctors or may have trouble getting in to see a family doctor. Hence the importance of doing it in schools. All of these children are in school. We can bring experts to the school to answer the questions. We can set up vaccination clinics in the school, and that will help address that that missing link that you've uh, rightly identified. Is this the way it's being rolled out elsewhere, or are we watching what is being done elsewhere to see what we can do here in B.C.? The best example we have so far is the United States, and it's always been a diversity of 
wings of administration that have included anyone who really wanted to step up to the plate and provide vaccines. That was utilitarian there because that's how it went. Here, we haven't done it yet, but I suspect it will work. And let's see what they do in Ontario. As an example, in Ontario, they're giving the kids take-home COVID tests for the holiday period. They're involving families. They're involving sort of the broader healthcare community. I think that's what that'll work here, too. Are, are there any concerns, Dr. Conway, about like given what's happened in BC this week, that it's been incredibly challenging? And obviously, the government is very occupied, too. And now we've got this to take on. Well, you know, we have to multitask and, and, you know, we have public health emergencies, we have environmental emergencies, we have opioid crisis emergencies, all of which are equally important. I think that if we're going to go forward in COVID world, we really need to embrace this. It's great that it's happened a bit faster than some, including myself, had said, but I think time is of the essence and let's see how we can fit it in. I don't know. You don't give yourself enough credit. You told us multiple times that you thought before the holidays. I did say before the holidays, but I didn't say before the end of November. But, I, you know, so maybe you're right. I'm not giving myself enough credit. <laughs> but right, but, but I'll, take, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. But I think that going forward, going forward uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, COVID world is destabilizing. To me, this is almost, this is saying we can get back to near normal or to COVID normal more quickly than we had anticipated. So I view this as perhaps a source of stability in an uncertain environment. So if I, I, I that's cer- certainly if a family were to ask me today, I would say, yeah, let's just get this done. Let's figure out how to do it quickly. You and me together and your family together. I'll go talk at the schools if I'm asked to. Let's just view this. This is good news. So let, let's, let's sort of try and frame it that way and, and get people to, to feel that they've done something they're doing something positive. They're engaging in the solution to COVID with more and more of their family. All right. That's a good way to put it. Dr. Conway, thank you. Thanks again for having me. The Salvation Army's annual Christmas kettle campaign is kicking off at the Vancouver Art Gallery this morning. Mike Leland is with us now, Divisional Secretary for the Salvation Army. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Simi. I know you've got big plans for this year, right? Tell us all about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But first, Simi, I'd like to just, um, you know, pay tribute and and let the people in the valley know that our thoughts and prayers uh, are with them. Uh, They're going through a difficult time. And and from everyone at the Salvation Army, uh, we certainly have them in our thoughts. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is kind of a classic example of why the Kettle campaign is so important. Um, You know, money's raised uh, during this time of year. Uh, Support efforts like this, like we've been on the ground uh, since day one of the flooding, uh, helping people uh, with evacuation, helping people with food and spiritual care and shelter. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's a tragic situation, but it is a, a classic example of where your money goes when you support the Salvation Army. And that's good because I know last year it wasn't easy to get out there and, and get support from people. So what will people see this year, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be in over 40 communities uh, across the province. Uh, We officially launched uh, on the 12th. Uh, We are officially launching here in Vancouver uh, today. Our goal is $5 million. Uh, Last year, British Columbians were incredibly generous. Uh, We raised $5.4 million. Um, We're in a similar situation this year with COVID. COVID COVID hasn't subsided. 
Uh, we're still seeing an increase in need in all of our shelters and our feeding centers and our community family service centers. Um, so we're asking people to get out there. Um, we've made it super easy for you this year. We've got the tap technology again, so you can simply walk up, uh, tap your card, five, ten, twenty-five dollar donations, uh, and support your community. We will certainly do our best. Mike, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. I appreciate you guys. One of the things of of huge concern right now is the farmers who are trying to save as many animals as possible in the Fraser Valley. And we know that thousands of animals have been impacted by what is going on there. So how can we help out? Joining us now is Eileen Drever, the Senior Officer of Protection and Stakeholder Relations for the BCSPCA. Good morning, Eileen. Good morning, Simi. What has this week been like? What kind of phone calls are you getting? Well, we're getting lots and lots of phone calls. And, you know, it's heartbreaking knowing so many animals have lost their lives in this past week. Um, I get quite emotional even thinking about it. But the BCSPCA is here to help pet guardians. The Ministry of Agriculture is responsible for the livestock in the province. But we are, we are standing by to assist them in any way we can. And in the past few days, we've been restricted as to what we can do because of the we can't access um, any farms, any anybody because of the road closures. So that's been pretty difficult. However, we have been providing emergency boarding for individuals who have been displaced, and we are providing food and 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 pet supplies for individuals who have taken their animals with them, but didn't expect to be away for so long. It's quite traumatic for pet guardians and, and, and psychologically it's really stressful for the animals as well. Oh, I could imagine. We've, we've also heard, Eileen, that animal shelters in Abbotsford are being overwhelmed right now with the number of animals that they have. Well, our Abbotsford shelter had to close. We had to evacuate because of the flooding and so that's closed to the public. The uh, We're... we're boarding animals at our Chilliwack facility, Maple Ridge. We're boarding animals all over. And we've actually um, made space for more emergency boarding. That's through foster volunteers. They've been really helpful in fostering some of our animals. So, again, we're here to help. And if anybody needs any assistance, please, please reach out to us. Now, are these mainly people's pets uh, that they have at home with them? Yes, yes. Okay, so it could be anything. It's dogs, cats, you name it. You, you name it. And, and if we can't help, we'll, we'll find help for you. Um, it, it, people, this is another thing. People are, have come together, and it's, it's, that's heartwarming as well, seeing everybody helping each other, especially in the town of Hope. So it's, it's amazing, but we will, if we are, we are unable to help you, we will find somebody that can. Okay, and what about other people who would like to pitch in and help out, Eileen? Like, do you need people to help foster animals? Like, what do you need so that the rest of us can help? Well, yes, we can, we can use, I think we're okay right now for foster homes, but if anybody wishes to help, they can go to our website and uh, check the volunteer page, and they can apply online. That would be amazing. And, of course, if anybody wants to don- donate any supplies, they can contact their local shelter and uh, perhaps drop them off there. Now, are, are you? This is something that has happened. I know before, but do you? Is this an emergency plan that you had to put into place to deal with what happened this week, Eileen? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, it was just a few months ago we were dealing with fires and assisting people 
um, with their animals during the fires. And it's just, I, I don't know what's going on, but this is twice this year we've had to kick this emergency plan out. A good thing you have it then, for sure. So Absolutely. so what what type of, it's a specialty food that was required here? Like you obviously still need some supplies. Oh, yes. If anybody, if you want to donate food, that w- anything, um, and we can pass it along to uh, people who have been displaced. Okay, so uh, where should they go to do all this to be able to help out? Like, should they phone you? Should they go to the website? Okay, so if, you're, if you would like to donate supplies, contact your local shelter, and they could probably accept them there. If you go to our website, you can, have, you can get more information on what you can do to help us. And if anybody would like to make a donation, you can do that online as well. And I know you mentioned that livestock is dealt with by the Ministry of Agriculture. Is there any involvement that the SPCA has in that at all? No, well, we have been in touch. We've been communicating with various industries and the government and veterinarian stakeholders regarding the immediate animal welfare needs of farm animals in the affected areas. But as up to date, we have not been able to get in there because of the lack of access. Is that something that you're hoping to still do? Well, I'm hoping we can help in any way we can. I think everybody else is feeling that too. So, okay, so then just to recap here, Eileen, I know the use of the animal shelter that you've got in Abbotsford is closed down. Uh, so what is it? Do you, you're okay for fosters right now. I believe we're okay for fosters, but if anybody would like to volunteer, please check out our website and you can apply online and we'll be in touch with you. If anybody out there requires any assistance, please call our call center. And do you mind if I give that number? No, absolutely. Go ahead. Excellent. one eight five five six two two seven seven two two. All right. Hopefully we can uh, pitch in and help out there. Eileen, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you.